Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to Geekish Cast, episode number 167. Today I'm joined by Brian C. Bear, author of How He-Man Mastered the Universe and many other books. If you want to check this book out, just go to tinyurl.com slash He-Man Brian. That'll take you right to the book on Amazon. We will be right back after this word from our sponsor, and we'll get to know Brian. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming back. I'm your host, Jeremy, and joining me today is author Brian C. Bear. How you doing, Brian? Oh, I'm doing all right. How about you? I'm fair to Midland. Uh, glad to have you on finally. We had a couple couple slips and mishaps getting you scheduled, but I'm glad to have you here. Yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah, so um, I, I'm trying to even remember how I found out about your book. I can't remember if I came across you on Twitter or Amazon, but you wrote a book called How He-Man Mastered the Universe. You want to give us the quick rundown on that? Yeah, sure. So, um, gosh, this is something I've been wanting to write for at least a decade. <laughs> it, uh, I, I kind of was looking over kind of the state of these cross media franchises. You know, you have the movie has to have the animated series has to have the action figures has to have the video game. Everything is so uh, synced in across the multiple uh, uh, spectrum now. And I was thinking, you know, how did all this get started? And what really got the ball rolling was He-Man, the action figure, which led to the He-Man and the masters of the universe cartoon. So I realized that was the first, uh, animated series based on an action figure and then when the film came out in 87 with Dolph Lundgren that was the first live action film based on an action figure and you know we're on what the fifth movie of Transformers at this point and it's just kind of that's the way the the market operates anymore that's just kind of how it is but that had never really been a thing before He-Man and I was thinking hey I want to read a book about that and there wasn't one so I figured oh I guess I can write a book about that (laughs) Well, that's awesome. Um, so I did a little a little snooping around in your background. You have a degree in creative writing, so I have to assume you enjoy writing. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. yeah. When did you When did you discover your uh, your love for pen and paper? Um, you know, I was always interested in uh, reading and comic books and and movies and all, all that stuff growing up. And when uh, when I was getting ready to go off to college, I was thinking, you know, I want it'd be fun to get into acting. It would be fun to, you know, kind of do more drawing or anything like that. And then, you know, suddenly going into a bigger pond, you start looking at, you know, the logistics of stuff like that and just how talented most people are at, at any given thing. And just kind of on a lark, uh, I took a intro to creative writing class, my first um, quarter at Eastern Washington University. And it was taught by a grad student who just had all this energy and love for the project. And the first day in class, he read a short story. There was an essay, I suppose, uh, by David Sedaris. And I had never heard of him, never heard his stuff before. 
and you know it's it wouldn't be as good if you're not actually hearing it in Sedaris's voice but just kind of that moment sort of said you know this is something that's so fun and human and it's something uh, I wanted to really give a try to so I just kind of stuck with that and eventually got my uh, degree in it okay were you hoping when when you were focusing on creative writing were you what kind of stuff were you hoping to write? Was it going to be fiction or I mean, what was kind of your genre of choice at that time in your life? Oh, well, um, initially, I, I really had an interest in nonfiction, okay. uh, sort of the memoir sort of thing. But then I quickly realized I'm not very interesting. So uh, I started moving <laughs> over uh, into fiction. And uh, when you come through through a program like that, that leans very heavily on short stories and kind of the capital L literary sort of writing, you know, New Yorker stuff, everybody lives in a brownstone, quietly troubled marriages. You know, it's it's fine uh, for, for what it is, but it can be uh, a, little, a little dull at, at times. So uh, that was kind of what they teach. And then it took a good, you know, a couple of years after that before I really found my own voice for what I was interested in, uh, in, in fiction and otherwise, and uh, kind of kind of find my own way as far as that goes. Yeah. I always find writing to be kind of an interesting field because there's so much just right in front of you that you can do. Like my wife is really into resistance literature and she did when she went through college, mm-hmm. ran, ran a program on therapeutic writing, but, oh, wow. but her most recent book was a bagel cookbook. So <laughs> it's, it's just kind of like whatever, you know, whatever you're focusing on at the moment, you can find a way to do something with. So I always find it to be a really interesting field, but one I'm not very good at. <laughs> yeah, it's, that is a really good point. It's, it's, nobody has to be really tied down to just the one thing they do. So that's, that's really cool about, about your wife. We have to uh, take a look at that. I love some bagels. Oh yeah. I'll, I'll uh, make sure we either get you a digital copy or send you the links to check out. It's, um, it's her smash hit book right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, that's how it works. You spend, you spend years working on these one things and you do something as a one-off and that's the thing everybody loves. Yeah. yeah, That's well, that's the beauty of art, I guess, right there. Um, So the other thing I noticed is that you got to do some traveling around after you got out of college. You, uh, you want to share any stories with us about where you went and what you did? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's always, it's always kind of fun to, to tell that story. So, um, I had started working, um, in I started working out in a mail room actually uh when I was finishing up my my degree and um that kind of turned in you know it was a little temp job that turned into like a real job and I was there for gosh about three years and then I was coming up on I believe it was my 25th birthday and just kind of had that that moment in a cubicle of what am I doing with my life oh god how did this happen uh and I never had a panic attack before but uh I I you know was able to self-diagnose thanks to the wonders of the internet and realize I was having a panic attack because I was for the first time really thinking about my life and what I wanted to do. Uh, and I had realized that I had never really gone outside of my own little sphere here in, in Eastern Washington. Uh, I grew up in Walla Walla, Washington. I moved you know about three hours North to go to Eastern Washington university, uh, in Seattle or Spokane, excuse me. And, um, you know, I was thinking I, I really missed some opportunities and I really want to go out there and do more. So I was looking around for grad schools at first and then kind of thinking, you know, that, that may not be 
for me necessarily because I was still kind of getting my feet under me as far as writing goes. So uh, I found there was a program to teach you how to teach English as a second language. And the, the program was run out of the Czech Republic uh, in Prague. And so just kind of on, on a whim, really, uh, I applied and quit my job and uh, fled the continent. <laughs> nice. You know, a good friend of mine did that, uh, but he went to Japan. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So he was over there for oh, five or ten years. I can't even remember how long. But it was funny because you figure somebody picks up and goes to the, uh, you know, the Eastern world like that. They'll come back with a Japanese wife. He came back with a Scottish one. <laughs> but, that's you know, funny. yeah, <laughs> I always thought that was a funny story. But, you know, um, no, it's really cool. So you got to go to the Czech Republic that way. Yeah, yeah. So did the did the program over there? I got certified uh, in in the, the ESL or TFL, TEFL. There's there's a lot of different acronyms for it. Um, and so I, I realized I wasn't really a great teacher either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but it's, I I've, I've always been so interested in in the English language and its weird inconsistencies and and everything like that. So. Um, what I what I found actually was uh, there's a lot of uh, online teaching jobs like that that you can do from from really anywhere, and so what I did uh, after I got my degree is I kind of traveled around some, was looking for a job, kind of half-heartedly because um, I'm, I'm not great with you know teaching or children or stuff like that, and so when I found the uh, uh, online job, I ended up settling in the UK for a while as I was uh, teaching. Uh, online and I, I lived in London for a couple weeks and then uh, found just that's just huge and expensive and everything so I moved yeah. up to uh, Manchester and stuck around there for about a year uh, teaching online and then uh, went back to uh, Prague uh, to keep teaching because it's really cheap there they're not in the the euro or anything like that so uh, went back there to kind of save up some money and then uh, ended up moving back home. Yeah, I remember stories in the 90s about how you could, like, live on $100 in Prague for, like, six weeks without, like, a king. So yeah, it's, it's pretty close, yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you lived in Manchester, did you become a, a United fan? Were you a soccer hooligan? You know, honestly, uh, it's, it's it's a little disappointing in myself because I actually never made it to a match. Uh, oh. I, I, would, I would love seeing everybody cheering in the pubs and uh, get to see everybody – kind of marching their way through the city center from the train station over to the fields. And it was, it was always the the culture of the game always interested me, but I've never really been a, uh, a sports fan in general. So it was, it was fun to kind of observe from the outside, but uh, I do go back and visit about every year. And uh, one of these days I'm, I'm going to have to uh, uh, go watch a match in person. That's really cool. Yeah. I would hope you get a chance to like smash some windows or something too. Just oh, so you, really, oh, you got yeah, it. Yeah. Live the experience. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> Not that I'm saying Manchester football fans are rowdy, but there, there are rowdier if you'd believe it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now when you, uh, during the process of this, what was the first book you wrote and how did you get from traveling around trying to teach people English to that? Um, yeah. So I had started kicking around a, uh, idea before I left. Um, it kind of started as a short story that I loved too much, and so it just kind of kept expanding. Um, and that was actually what I worked on while I was abroad. Um, it, uh, it's, it's called a Bad Publicity. It's a, it was a novel, sort of a 
tabloid noir ghost story satire sort of it's it's weird um and so that was something i had been kind of working on while i was uh, abroad and uh, when i lived in uh, manchester i lived with this uh, uh great older gentleman named jake who had been a uh, uh, professional ghostwriter for years, and so we got to talk craft and everything like that. And it was it was a good experience for for that creatively. And so when I came back to the states, um, I just sort of been idly shopping that around, and uh, uh, found a a really small indie publisher who was interested. So it kind of uh, uh, fell together. Nice. Now, are you do you have you self published any books, or have you always gone through a uh, another party publisher? Uh, it's always been through another party. Um, the <clears throat> excuse me, the the publisher that did bad publicity actually went out of business uh, uh, pretty pretty close thereafter. I'm pretty sure it wasn't because of me, but you know. Um, so I, I did get the rights back, and uh, I have been working on getting that back in print. And that's going to be um, not exactly a self pub. It's going to be kind of some some friends here in the local uh, Spokane writing scene who have uh, put together some some zines and, and chat books and stuff. So uh, they're going to be uh, helping me uh, get that back out there. No, that's really cool. It's I'm, I'm interested in talking to people who are self-publishing now through like Amazon and things like that. Yeah. Be, because it's such a wide open field. I mean, it does kind of screw up your noise to signal ratio. I mean, a lot more authors can get stuff out, but that means a lot more shit hits the fan in the process, too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but really, so much of that has changed in the last couple of years. I remember when I was going through my creative writing program, it was just they they said, you know, the big rules are you don't pay to get published. You don't, you know, go through a vanity press. You don't self-publish. Anything like that is going to be more trouble than it's worth when you actually do try to get an agent or a publisher because they're going to see that and they're not going to take you seriously. Right. And that was what I was taught, and that was, you know, less than 10 years ago. And now you have a lot of guys like, you know, uh, John Scalzi, and you have a lot of, you know, really well-known, well-respected authors who, who do that, and, and nobody really thinks of it. And there are, you know, authors who will have a big a book released through a publisher, and then they'll release something themselves as well. And it's just that it's completely wide open, like you said. It's, it's very interesting to see how that's all evolving. Oh, yeah. Well, I would still say don't use a vanity press. Oh, absolutely. Don't do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> the stigma of the self-publishing, actually, I know from watching my wife go through with agents and talking to publishers, mm-hmm. you better have an audience uh, before right. you even talk to an agent anymore, you better have people reading your blog and downloading your free books on Amazon almost before anybody will even talk to you. So, yeah, like every other artistic endeavor, the money's been drained out of a lot of things, and they expect you to bring people to them when it used to be the other way around. Yeah, and you had to do your own marketing afterwards. There's a yeah. whole bunch of that stuff. It's a, it is interesting, though, because um, there was a lot that wasn't ideal about getting uh, my little ghost paparazzi book out there. Uh, but really, I, I don't think I could have gotten the He-Man book off the ground if I hadn't. It's it's nice to you know be able to point to something like that, whether it is um, through a traditional publisher or an indie publisher or even self-published, as long as you have – something there kind of on the resume to point at. I think that that goes a long way. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, let's let's go ahead and refocus now a little bit here. We'll go back to uh, young Brian C. Bear and his love <laughs> of He-Man. Um, when did you first discover He-Man, and uh, how much of a hold did it take on you? Was it the cartoon? What, what was your introduction? 
Yeah, I was I was a little too young for the cartoon. I was born in '85, and that's when they stopped really making the new new episodes. But you know, it was in syndication forever, and we had taped a lot of episodes off of TV. So definitely grew up with the cartoon around. Definitely grew up with the action figures. My my brother's a, a good three three and a half years older than me, so he was right in the in, in kind of the the prime age group to get the toys. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I got to grow up with his his you know leftovers and hand me downs and stuff like that. Um, really, it, it's it's a, a story that was really fun to tell in the introduction of the book. I was introduced to He Man uh, on really the day of my birth because my brother was there at the hospital in his He-Man t-shirt with his He-Man action figures and and was so excited to really get to show this to his new brother and get to kind of teach him the ways of the world because, you know, what's cooler than He-Man? Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, a friend of mine who's a filmmaker out of British Columbia, mm-hmm. I, I don't think he's ever said it in a large way, but he's basically split the world into two points, before Star Wars and after Star Wars. Oh, definitely, yeah. And He-Man and the Masters of the Universe kind of owe their existence to Star Wars, or at least the toys of Star Wars. Um, yeah. Can you uh, touch on that a little bit for us? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, really, as far as just just marketing uh, in itself goes, the the world was really not prepared for Star Wars and kind of the the life it took on like that. Because um, basically, what had happened was uh, George Lucas had been going around to toy companies trying to get this action figure tie in for his movie, and it, it's it's kind of funny to think about now, but people were really not sold on this movie and it was coming out. People thought it looked too much. Uh, too cartoony, too much like an old old film serial thing. It, it wasn't really the way things were done at that time. And so he was having a hard time finding anybody to really go for it. And he approached all the major toy companies um, at the time to try to get them to go for it. And, and nobody really did. <laughs> and so you, you have a lot of companies like Mattel and Mego that were big at the time who said no to it. And then when the toys did come out and just it was gangbusters, even though, you know, the the company basically sold a a coupon saying the toys aren't ready yet. Check back in, you know, a couple months and then you'll get your toys if you have this coupon, which is it's it's ridiculous to think that would have worked. But it it totally did. And all the other toy companies out there were were just kind of shell shocked by that. They didn't really have the whole boys action figure market figured out. Or if they had something, there was no way it could compete with Star Wars. Yeah. Um, now, see, I'm 12 years older than you. So I remember uh, when I was three, four years old and the Star Wars toys hitting the market, like, after. You couldn't get them at Christmas time. You had to wait another six months. Right, right. Um, but I also remember the toys before that. Mego made everything. Planet yeah. of the Apes, Star Trek, uh, the superhero lines. And it was a huge, it was a huge departure from you know the the Mego figures to the Star Wars toys. Yeah, because they were what three and three quarter. Yeah. Yeah, as opposed to Mego, were what like nine or ten? I want to say. Uh, I, I was thinking seven, but it was also because in uh, the time Star Wars came out, there was the oil embargo, so plastic right. suddenly exploded price wise too. But that gets us a little off topic there. So Mattel <laughs> felt like they missed the boat, is what I'm taking from your story here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So they were wanting to kind of find a way to get back uh, kind of to the front of the boys' market. They they had, you know, Barbie had been around for years at this point. They were really well established. I, I don't think anybody doubted that they kind of ran 
the toy world when it came to the girls' action figures and dolls and whatnot. But they, they really wanted to try to get something. You know, everybody wanted to be the next Star Wars. So they were looking for something to do as, as a tie-in as, as well. And it's, it's, it's difficult um, to do that sort of thing because tooling the action figures and, and sculpting and designing and everything from the ground up takes so much longer than they are typically given because really a movie is going to be in production when they start shopping around for a tie-in like that. And so what they were starting to look to do at Mattel is to have something kind of ready to go uh, that they could customize basically to match Buck Rogers or, or whatever else was looking for, for an action figure. So that way they could get it out in time. And so what they started doing was putting together kind of a generic action figure that they could adjust like that. But then I'm, I'm actually not sure who had the idea in Mattel to somewhere along the ladder. They said, why wait for somebody to come to us? Why can't we do something like this ourselves? So they decided to try to make an original action figure, which uh, as opposed to being based on something, they would be in, in charge of everything as far as making the worlds and the characters and, and, and everything like that, which would free them up a lot. But I think it's also uh, a pretty big undertaking to not have something to lean on like that. So they started shopping around for what would be the best ideas here. They're, they're taking to focus groups and everything like that. And they got it narrowed down to kind of a, a space uh, fantasy sort of thing, a military idea, or a barbarian fantasy. And so when they did get it figured out, uh, as far as the action figures go, the barbarian fantasy figure sort of became He-Man, uh, essentially. It's kind of narrowing down the, the story a bit, but that, that's about how it went. Yeah. Um, and you touch on this a bit in your book, but I never knew if this was apocryphal or not. Originally, this was going to be a Conan the Barbarian line, was the thought? Or is that still kind of nebulous if that was factual? Um, I believe it, it was factual at some point. It's just going to be an issue of how factual it was because they did approach uh, – they, they were approached by the, the rights holders for the Conan film. And either – it's one of those that that much is established, but it's going to be an issue of who you hear the rest of the story from because some people say that they said, this sounds fun, but we, we can never get it ready in time. Or else you have uh, people like Roger Sweet who who taken a uh, taken a lot of credit for the for the He-Man brand for better or worse. Uh, the way he tells the story is Mattel was all ready to go until they let them see an early cut of the movie, and then they saw you know this is very rated R, this is very gory and violent, and uh, not a kids movie, so they didn't want to make a kids action figures for it. So it's it's so much of it is of the story is established, and so much is really up to. Uh, who you hear it from, which is kind of the case with most things involving He-Man. Okay. Uh, Brian, we're going to take a quick ad break right here, and we'll come right back and pick it up from there. Sounds good. All right, guys, thanks for joining us. Uh, we are still talking to Brian C. Bear. We're kind of delving into the history of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, the toy line, and the book he wrote, How He-Man Mastered the Universe. That's a I like the title because it really says what you're talking about. Uh, that was all McFarland. They, uh, I, I had pitched it uh, under the name The Power of Grayskull, uh, oh, which, which I, 
I loved. But then they kind of said, well, you know, this needs to really jump out at somebody who is maybe not as well versed, who who maybe wouldn't know off the top of their head what Grayskull is, but they see, you know, He-Man and Master and Universe, and they'll they'll really get it down. So they they kind of counter propose that title and it's it's really hard to argue with it because I I think it's a great title too. I, I do. I mean I love something that says here here's exactly what you're getting, you know. <laughs> Texas yeah. Chainsaw Massacre. There oh, you go. <laughs> yeah. There you, there you have it. Um so I mean we know that somebody from oh uh, who who was I can't even think of the guy's name now who wrote Conan originally, but somebody uh, from his Howard. Yeah. Robert Howard. Yeah. Somebody from his estate had gone to Mattel or somebody to ask about creating this possible Conan line, and now we have He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. This is actually where I come into the story, because I first discovered He-Man in the early days when it was a toy line with awesome little mini-comics. I love those comics. <laughs> and Yeah, and He-Man existed in a world where he had magical gear and old laser guns, and Castle Grayskull was kind of a Cthulhu-esque thing mm-hmm. that hung out in the background and it was a much i don't know darker is is that even the right way to explain it it was a much more bizarre and almost european comic book feel to it in those days yeah yeah that's a great way to describe it it's definitely different from uh i think even from from year to year the the, the comics kind of started evolving the story until it eventually just kind of merged with the cartoon when that came out yeah. Well, and you can kind of feel that like the early comics were the comic writer kind of had a little more free hand to create the universe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then it's when a new writer would come in uh, for, for the second wave of figures, uh, they, they got some of the guys over from Marvel, uh, yeah. to Marvel Comics to do that. And then they, they basically ended up tossing out most of that. And uh, the people who came after that tossed out most of that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's Another thing I've always really enjoyed about the franchise is how uh, frequently it tends to revise or reinvent itself. Yeah, that's been kind of a cool thing about it. Um, So you go from those comics, and I believe DC Comics then did a comic series about He-Man. That was the next media interpretation they got. Right. But the thing we come to real quickly is Filmation, who, for guys my age, Filmation did everything when I was a kid. They did, oh, yeah. they did Star Trek, the Brady Bunch. I mean, they, Shazam, they covered mm-hmm. it all. Um, there was a weird thing going on in animation at the time because what had traditionally been a Saturday morning spot for kids' cartoons was suddenly very restricted, and now they were looking at a daily, uh, if, let me know if I'm getting something wrong here, but daily cartoons instead of Saturday morning. That's right. Yeah. So they basically what what they would do is have the cartoons kind of premiere in the Saturday morning spot, and then they'd be sold off to syndication to be played on on local channels all over. Uh, then they those would be kind of they ended up typically being played around you know the mid afternoon when kids are getting home from school. Yeah. So that was now my younger. I only have one brother, and he's seven mm-hmm. years younger than me, seven and a half years younger than me. So I quickly aged out of He-Man and sent all my stuff down to him. He was was born in 1980, so he was the right age for the He-Man cartoon. I mean, so when it started, you know, you only had one TV back then, really. (laughs) So you get home, little brother puts on He-Man. I watched a lot of those cartoons, and being, God, I wanted to say I was 11 or 12 at the time. I thought they were terrible at the time. Yeah, a little too old for them at that point. Yeah. Um, but 
they were really kind of groundbreaking. Like you were saying, they were really the first, take it as a positive or a negative. They were a toy line who managed to talk their way into a 30-minute daily uh, commercial right as kids were getting home from school, but also doing it in a way that was entertaining and not purely just sell, sell, sell. Yeah, and that's and that's basically all thanks to Lou Scheimer and the the filmation people because that's they wanted to take it seriously. They wanted to tell real stories with real characters, and you know they they were always very very set on telling the morals and stuff as well. So I think I think they they had always kind of bristled at the idea of it being a thirty minute cartoon because they put so much work into it, uh, or thirty minute commercial, excuse me. Um, but but really on 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 some level that 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 is basically true still I think it handled uh, that sort of double duty better than uh, other cartoons from around that time that would come out a little later but it it was doing its job there to sell some toys oh absolutely uh, another cartoon and toy line we should bring up also because. We do a live episode on Thursday nights at 7 p.m. Pacific, and one of my co-hosts is Joe Slepsky, and he does a podcast called Joe on Joe, where he goes through and watches and comments on every episode of G.I. Joe. Awesome. Oh, see, that was that was a little more in my, my age range when I was growing up. Yeah, so he um, they, they followed kind of the similar model to the, the Masters of the Universe, you know, Toy Line, then we'll get a daily cartoon. Mm-hmm. So it really did kind of change the universe there. But, you know, I want to jump ahead a little bit after the cartoon and talk about something that I think is a little more dear to you. Let's talk <laughs> Let's talk about the canon film uh, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Oh, yeah. The, the movie is, is definitely my jam. It's uh, I know it's not for everybody. I know a lot of uh, more, more hardcore He-Man fans uh, don't like it as much because there were a lot of changes from the stuff people really enjoyed from the cartoons. But uh, I, I just think it's it's really well put together. It's it's beautifully designed. It's it's just a lot of fun. So they, they actually got rid of some of the elements that I didn't care for in the cartoon. He-Man was, once again, just He-Man. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't think we saw Prince Adam in the movie, right? No, no, no not even any mention of that. Same with, yeah, Battle Cat or the, the Royal Family, anything like that. Yeah, and they also got rid of Orko. Oh, and and they were just theaters full of angry children. <laughs> but but they replaced him with something that might have even sucked more. <laughs> Gul'dar never gets any love. Yeah. No, he really, really, with a face like that, how could he? <laughs> um, well, let's talk a little bit about because I mean it was Canon Films that created or that picked up the license to this movie, right? That's right. Uh, Mattel had been kind of shopping it around, and there were some some other companies that were interested apparently, but I think they were. It was, again, something that had never really been done, being, you know, turning a cartoon and, a, and an action figure line into a live action movie. You know, they had, you know, He-Man itself had already had like two animated movies, maybe actually three that had gone to theaters at that point. So so that wasn't an issue. But but doing it in live action and trying to, you know, capture a different market that way, that was that was something that was untested. I think some some companies were a little uncertain about that. I think Mattel was was a little uncertain about how to how to handle that as well. But they wanted something that was a, a turned around that would come out on time, that would sell more action figures and be done fairly cheaply. And uh, w- when you want something like that, you you would go to Canon. Absolutely. They um, they were taskmasters and misers. They could turn out a cheap movie really fast. 
That's that's absolutely right. There's a, I found a quote from a from Christopher Reeve when he was filming a Superman four, which was about the same time, uh, and he had said something along the lines of uh, uh, Golan and Globus, who who ran Canon Films, uh, they would uh, uh, they they would they would uh, nickel and dime you over peanuts. You know, it was, it was, it was something along those lines. As it was, they're they're in uh, they're in coach and they're demanding first class service that that sort of a mindset they had there it was it was that was actually a really fun chapter to write because i wrote a chapter all about filmation which was fun and and wrote a chapter all about canon films which uh, a lot of that information was new to me <laughs> it's uh, there's some really crazy stories about those guys it was pretty scammy at times what they were doing <laughs> Well, and showbiz is a scammy business. I mean, it, let's let's face it; it's it's half con and half skill, really. That's that that sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, because first off, you got to talk somebody to give you some money, and there's no way to do that without laying on a layer of bullshit somewhere. You know? <laughs> there was a couple layers they would do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I you know I hear people give those going a globus like a bad rap, but I'm thinking, but you know what? Almost everybody I know who has dealt with larger scale movie studios mm -hmm. this is not an abnormal story yeah and it's it's what what's so funny about their their business model basically is they would be losing money on basically everything they did and just keep shifting the money around yes. and they were basically built around the the market strategy that all they needed was a star wars all they yep. needed was one big blockbuster movie and that would pay off all the other movies and everything so they just kind of kept moving forward with it and it, it's, you know, we, we kind of look back and laugh at these guys and the things they were doing. But, you know, if they did have a Star Wars, it'd be a completely different story. Oh, yeah. That's that's just it. They were one hit movie away from, you know, being remembered as geniuses instead of uh, bullshit artists. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. And they did, they did do some uh, do some pretty, uh, pretty well received, pretty, pretty budgetarily good movies you know breakin uh was was huge oh yeah uh, and, and uh was it enter the ninja was that the first one the first ninja movie uh the first one was enter the ninja and the second one was revenge of the ninja and then the third one was like ninja three the domination if I oh and that was right. that was where it got really crazy uh yeah. but yeah the, yeah the the those two movies uh really they, they were big cultural moments in the 80s and they pulled in just crazy money but you know it wasn't it wasn't quite good enough <laughs> No, never. It never is really though. Um, so look to me, and you're gonna have to help me out here. It, some of the art was it done by uh, Jean Girard or uh, Mobius? Yeah. Them? Okay, I didn't know that before. Yeah, it was. They, they got him in to do kind of some of the design work. He had been uh, over in the states working on. You know, he had he'd been working on Dune. I believe he did some work on Alien uh, before that as well. And the uh, production designer Bill Stout uh, uh, knew him and was basically, you know trying to trying to get him some some work because they were buddies and so he had said that basically anytime there was something that the design team just was not getting their heads around was having a really hard time adapting from the source material uh he just kind of point mobius at it and that's really where they got the he-man design from uh, uh initially but also some some great stuff with the throne room set and and other really great stuff in there yeah all right so now i gotta hit you with the tough question Okay. Um, you're a comic book fan, so I'm not feeling like this will fall on deaf ears. <laughs> they have always said that He-Man was the best Jack Kirby fourth world movie we would ever see. I completely agree. Yeah. How much of that was fans just putting together a correlation that didn't exist? And how much of that do you think was actually based on the fourth world? 
You know, um, the the director, Gary Goddard, and Bill Stout were both huge Jack Kirby fans. And it was every step of the way, this, this they would be, you know, trying to figure out a design. And one of them would say, it needs to be more Kirby. It, w- it was always very, very intentional with the designs. And they'd actually tried to put a uh, special thank you to Jack Kirby in the credits. And, and Canon cut that out for, for whatever reason. Because so he'd get not... sued, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, who knows on that? Um uh... uh... But it was, it was, yeah, it was very intentional design-wise. I know a lot of people have pointed out some stuff with the story uh, as far as, you know, uh, Skeletor as being the dark side figure. Um, it, it kind of, they're, they're people kind of broken it down. Yeah. Um, but as far as the, the character and the story-wise, I, I don't necessarily see it. But when you have stuff like the cosmic key making boom tubes and stuff like that, I think that was definitely intentional. Okay. Did you see Thor Ragnarok yet? I did. That was insanely fun. How how cool was it to actually see so much Jack Jack Kirby style on the screen? I had never thought I, I would ever see anything like that, and it was it was th- that movie itself. I think was was incredible and weird and crazy in a lot of ways. But yeah, seeing seeing all that Kirby stuff that was that was something else for for an old time comic fan like me. Yeah, and then I discovered, and I can't remember who I talked to in this episode, but I found out that UC Santa Cruz back in the 70s, did a uh, stage performance of Julius Caesar mm-hmm. that Kirby did the set and costume designs for. Oh, my God. That sounds awesome. There there are photographs out there that you can find. Oh, I'm, I'm going to wait to Google until we're, we're off the call here because I don't want to be rude. But, yeah, yeah I'm definitely going to have to look into that. <laughs> as soon as I hear somebody's a Kirby fan, I'm like, okay, you need to go Google this. Hopefully, I, hopefully it is Santa Cruz. I could swear that's where it was. Um, <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah. So what else? I mean, you know, we're kind of starting to run down on time and I want to give you a chance to talk about other stuff you're working on. But what other little tidbits from your book, uh, How He-Man Mastered the Universe, would you like to share with us? Oh, gosh. Um, Getting a a little later into the book, I kind of deal with the fallout after the movie with canon shutting down uh, with with kind of where things were going. Um, It was very interesting to me to see kind of some little stutter starts uh, with with what was supposed to happen next because Canon was going to do a sequel and then uh, that was news to everybody involved with with the movie and, and none of them really wanted to come back. And so they, they'd kind of started doing a production of uh, Masters 2. At the same time, they were trying to put together their Spider-Man adaptation uh, and uh, – they both kind of fell apart with the rights issues and Canon was running out of money. And basically everything they had put together for those two movies was uh, smushed together and a script was written over a weekend and they made uh, the Jean-Claude Van Damme film Cyborg. Uh, so that's one of those uh, weird stories I've always loved. Uh, when I was uh, living in, in the UK, I actually got to see a double feature at the Prince Charles Cinema in London where they played Masters of the Universe and Cyborg together. And... Um, yeah, those movies have nothing to do with one another, but the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff is always really interesting. And there were a couple uh, more cartoons they tried to put together before they eventually did the uh, whole New Adventures of He-Man uh, one in, like, 1990 that people rightly uh, forget about. Um, yeah, there's just, there's just so much kind of life to, to the franchise uh, as a whole, and I think just... I think that it's very endearing to me to see kind of everything they tried to do with it and, and everything they did do with it as well. Yeah, I do remember that one. It was kind of weird because, like, the artwork was really poor. 
it was it was very much they, they kind of gave up and went with the whole Japanese style animation and yeah I, I think it, it suffered a bit for that as, as opposed to the filmation stuff yeah and it I'm, well it looked cheap and it looked dirty and the characters didn't look like who they were supposed to be yeah and it was it was always sort of supposed to be a sequel but not really to the filmation stuff it was always it, it, it was I think it was just more confusing than anything for fans. Yeah, it was as bad as the Highlander cartoon. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Oh, I completely forgot there was a Highlander cartoon. Oh, you probably paid money to help you forget, and now I just ruined <laughs> that for you. I just it, how great was the 1980s when when you could have hard R-rated films that were marketed to kids. I, I have a RoboCop bubble bath bottle. Oh yeah, is, it's one of my prized possessions, and it just it blows me away that we had Rambo cartoons oh. and and stuff like that. It's just it's crazy to me. I love it. Yeah, there was a Conan the Barbarian cartoon that came out as well. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a big RoboCop fan, so I have I have their two action or two uh, cartoon series on DVD and the family live action film or live action TV show they made in Canada. Oh, uh, I forgot yeah. about that. You should forget about that. Oh man. <laughs> I, I really did. See, there was a lot of... Here's the thing. So we can we can do this for a second. There was a lot of, like, crazy action stuff mm -hmm. that came out in the late 80s, early 90s, and it was that, you know, like, Black... Was it Black Manta or... Like, all sorts of crazy oh, yeah. superheroes, like Time Cop, and, like, all these crazy things that they were doing. Mm-hmm. And basically, they were all just like, somebody looked at a movie they liked and said, so what's a really cheap way we can do a TV show and not pay for the rights? Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was... I love it. I think that's my next book. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's there's a lot there. So, yeah, let's go ahead. Let's do that. What are you working on these days? What do you got going on? Oh, you know, I have been keeping busy with the whole uh, uh, NaNoWriMo thing, the National Novel Writing Month. So um, that that is keeping me busy. It's a... Uh, Nice to have an excuse to, you know, cancel plans with friends and, and, you know, really buckle down and write on something like that. So I've been doing that. I've had a couple um, short stories come out uh, over the last couple months that I've, I've uh, really enjoyed. Um, just kind of kind uh, of kind of moving forward. I'd like to do another uh, nonfiction book uh, eventually, but kind of I was getting the itch to go back and do some more fiction. So that's kind of what I'm working on right now. Right on. And again, that's kind of the beauty of, of writing in general is you can kind of just go like, hey, I'm going to write a book about a ghost who's also a car and <laughs> flies. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and then I'm going to write a cookbook. <laughs> Seriously, uh, I want bagels now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't, you know what, I'm going to make a note real quick. Uh, well, here, here's the thing. So just go to realbagelsareboiled.com. But, uh, um, Hit me up in a bit here, and I'll just see if my wife will let me send you a digital copy. <laughs> uh, sounds good. Yeah. Um, so anyways, Brian, if people want to find out more about what you're working on or what you've done, where can they check you out? You know, I have a website that I don't think I've updated uh, since before this book even came out, so that may not be the best place to start. Uh, I do spend uh, an unhealthy amount of time on Twitter, though. So uh, Brian C. Bear, all one word. My last name is B-A-E-R. It's a little little funky like that. Uh, but that's where I spend a lot of my time. Um, and uh, always happy to hear from people who uh, like He-Man or have read the book or want to argue with me about how great the movie is, anything like that. That's really cool. Yeah, you know, a lot of you authors have trouble keeping your websites up to date. We, I, I want to say we have better things to do, but we really don't. We're writers. Yeah. 
Well, I know November is not the month to do it. Not for a writer. No, no, it, it's it's pretty crazy for for everybody this time of year. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um. Also, they can check out your stuff over on Amazon. You've got several books listed there and an author bio. So if they want to figure out who you are as a person, they can check you out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and everybody else, you can catch us at geekishcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash geekishcast. I tweet from at the geekishcast. I am on Instagram, but really you just see pictures of like beer and my dogs. So I don't know <laughs> if that's helpful. <laughs> Brian, thank you for taking the time to do this. It was a lot of fun talking to you. I would like to keep you in my Rolodex for uh, further uh, exploration and discussion at some point. Yeah, absolutely. This was a lot of fun. I'd be happy to come back. Yeah. And uh, like I was saying earlier, we do live episodes on Thursdays at 7 p.m. One of my co-hosts is going to be deployed for the first third of next year, so I am looking for guest hosts to sit in on some episodes. Oh. Brian, I'd, I'd like to offer you an invitation in there as well. I'm not scheduling yet, but if it's something you might be interested in. Absolutely. Yeah, keep me in that Rolodex, man. I'm down. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, and usually I try to theme our, our guest hosts with what we're talking about for the week. Uh, but it's live. It's It leads to all sorts of wackiness. It's usually a lot of fun. <laughs> Sounds good. Cool. Thank you, Brian. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Geekish Cast is a Vias and Victor production and is part of the Astro Panda Productions Network. You can find us now on SoundCloud and on Blog Talk Radio. Our theme music is taken from the song Out to Get Mine by Reign of Zaius. Check them out at reignofzaius.net. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.